You're listening to To Whom It May Concern, a live monthly show in Los Angeles, California, where folks read their letters on stage. Real letters they've written or received, correspondence back and forth, improvised letters based on audience suggestions, and the letters we only wish we could write. She believes in things we cannot see, though she's never read the book. Laura Parker reads a letter to the person whose road rage left her with a surprising revelation. Angel lost in drunken flight. Dear Nameless, Hi. I don't know your name because we didn't get the chance to introduce ourselves last Wednesday at 11 a.m. I was in a black Honda Civic. You were in a silver Jetta. We were both going east through the Wilshire Corridor, right near the turnoff for the 405. There's a funny thing about this poorly constructed piece of road. While my fellow drivers and I are all backed up in a long line of traffic, inching toward the light at Sepulveda, we are painfully aware that there's this ironically empty bus lane to our right. It's right there, and it's so tempting. It calls out to us, hello there. Looks like you're stopped again. Mm, Look how much room I've got over here. I'm so wide and spacious. You could just coast right through me. Of course, I've never considered actually taking the bus lane. Only a complete egomaniac would do what literally everyone else wants to do, bypass all of us good citizens and scooch in front, as if you were going to get on the 405, but you spontaneously decide at the last second to get back on Wilshire. Oops, and look at that, you're suddenly in front of all of us. But I guess you are that egomaniac. I just have to ask you, do you have any idea how long we had all been waiting on Wilshire? An eternity. In my side mirror, I could see you zoom up from the bus lane shamelessly. I happened to be the one at that pivotal point on Wilshire where you would have to rejoin us or get on the freeway. And I thought, nuh-uh-uh. I am standing up for all my fellow drivers, and I am not going to let you in. But. Without slowing down at all, you pulled up close to my right and, in a surprisingly conscientious gesture, you actually used your turn signal to cut me off. (laughs) Suddenly, I wasn't in the car anymore. I was in the lunch line and I was nine years old. You were the bully cutting in front of me. Back then, I was way too shy and would probably have compassionately waved you in, letting myself be trampled on. But now, in my 30s and in a car, I feel empowered (laughs) and, more importantly, invisible. This is why, when you forced your way in, I stood up for justice. I vigorously gave you the finger. I also shouted something along the lines of, fuck you bitch, or bitch ass, or dick fuck. I really can't be sure. It all came from a deep, primal place, a place I strangely only have access to while in the car. In the car, I'm like Batman in his Batmobile. I'm a superhero whose mission is to fight society's ills, specifically traffic rudeness. I had good intentions. So, traffic was moving, slowly, 
and we were moving too. There was a gap in front of you for four whole car lengths. And since you seemed so eager to get wherever the heck you were going, I expected you to speed up. So I stepped on the gas. But right then, you slammed on your brakes very hard. You were sending me a message. You saw what I did, and you were daring me, even begging me to rear-end you. Luckily, I stopped two inches from your bumper. I was shocked, and on some level, even a little impressed, that you would risk your own safety in order to teach me a lesson about the dangers of road rage. It was, again, surprisingly conscientious of you. <laughs> At this point, all the other cars were continuing to inch forward, but not yours. You were still at a complete stop. And I started to wonder, were you going to get out of your car? Did you have a gun? Were you gonna take your Uzi and rain bullets through my windshield? I did not want that happening. My car's a lease. Finally. Finally, you started moving, and I breathed a deep sigh of relief. I was legitimately terrified. I've got to hand it to you, you really got me. I decided that now would be a good time to get as far the hell away from you as possible. I moved over two lanes to hide, and luckily, two cars pulled up between us. I thought I was safe. But clearly, this was not over for you yet because out of the corner of my eye, I could see your Jetta still inching forward, getting ahead of the cars so you could get a good look at me. I had a dramatic inner struggle between really wanting to avoid eye contact with you and also wanting to see what kind of lunatic I was dealing with. I had to look. You were young, male, maybe 19. You had your window rolled all the way down and your left arm, your head, and an unbelievably large amount of your torso leaning out in order to more fully stare me down. Throwing any remnant of caution to the wind, you were rolling forwards towards a stopped car while looking directly left at me. The look in your eyes I can only describe as deranged. <laughs> Gary Busey's mugshot comes to mind. <laughs> or any picture of Gary Busey, really. <laughs> I looked away in fear from your stare down. Boy, did you get me again. <laughs> Thankfully, just then the light turned green. As I sped away from you as fast as I could, I came to the conclusion that despite your lunacy, you made a very valid point. I really should control my road rage because you're definitely a bad guy, but I'm no longer sure that my behavior qualifies me as a good guy. I guess I'm no Batman. And beyond that, because while giving the finger and screaming at the top of my lungs in my car might feel harmlessly crazy, there are lots of real crazy people on the road. And if there's one place to find them, it's LA. <laughs> Sincerely, Laura. Robin Roberts returns to the letter show with an admonishing letter from Mattel about appropriate Barbie fan club etiquette. I bought my first Barbie doll when I was nine years old. We lived in Tahunga, California, which is a little kind of rural town, and it was even smaller back then. 
And I went to the one little department store they had and, and, and bought my Barbie. They only had one kind of Barbie. She had a brown bubble do hairdo. So that's what I got. But then I saw my friend's Barbie, and she had a platinum blonde bubble do hairdo. And I said, I want that. But I knew my parents wouldn't buy me another Barbie doll. And then I realized, you know, the heads just pop off these things. Maybe I could just get another head. So my mother helped me write this letter to Mattel, describing some horrible accident where my platinum blonde bubble head was destroyed. I don't remember the whole letter. I just remember this sentence that went, and then my dog Spotty chewed it up, which was a total lie because I didn't even have a dog. So we sent the letter. I don't know if we decided it was going to cost 50 cents or they wrote us back and said it'll cost 50 cents. But 50 cents later, I had a platinum blonde bubble head for my Barbie doll. And now I had two heads. So it was like Jackie Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe. And then I was pondering, well, what else can I scam off of Mattel? And I decided that I wanted Barbie fan club membership cards for all my friends. So I wrote another letter, and they sent me back a reprimand. And reading it as an adult, all I can think of is, that Barbie really had a stick up her butt. I'll let you be the judge. Dear Robin, thank you for your recent letter enclosing a check for 50 cents for five Barbie emblems and membership cards. Robin, the emblems and cards are given as a part of the subscription and shows other girls to whom the subscriber shows them that she is a member in good standing and a subscriber to the Barbie magazine. It would not be fair, would it, to send you only the emblem and card? We are therefore returning your father's check. Regarding your change of address, our records are kept by geographical order, that is, by state, then city, then name. Before we are able to change the address, we must have the original address so that we can pull your card from our files and make the change. I'm nine. We would therefore appreciate your sending us your previous address, and we shall be glad to make the necessary adjustment. We appreciate your having written. No, they don't. And hope that you will continue to enjoy many pleasant hours with Barbie. Sincerely yours, Mattel Incorporated, Helene Busby, Barbie Magazine Advisor. Is she like the consigliere of the Barbie Magazine? P.S. Please address your reply to Barbie Magazine, P.O. Box 813-BN, Hawthorne, California. Attention, Helene Busby. Steve LaRue reads a touching letter he received upon the passing of his father, and reflects poignantly upon the impact his father had on the community he lived in. In sympathy, always with you, love lives on forever in the heart. Love lives on. May the memories you hold in your heart bring healing and peace to your soul. So begins a letter of condolence I received last summer when my father Jim died. Dad was 95 and he lived a big, long life. At the time of Dad's death, I had spent many months taking care of him. And in my spare time, I wrote a weekly newspaper column 
It was called Notes from Groundhog Hill. I wrote one of my last columns at Dad's bedside in hospice care. At the time, I didn't know it was Dad's last morning, but I did know he would pass soon. Anyway, I met my deadline, and my column that week was sort of a love letter to the town, written on Dad's behalf, letting them know that Dad was about to depart this earth and that the most important lesson I learned from my father's life was simply how happy he had been being born, growing up, marrying, rearing a family, and dying in our hometown of Hodgenville, Kentucky. Dad was one of those lucky few who had everything he needed right in his own backyard. He never had to go looking for his happiness. As you would expect, I received a lot of cards and notes from friends and people in the community. I'm sure everybody in this room has probably written at least one, and they can be difficult to write. What do you say? Inside the American Greetings card with the flowery beginning, here's the handwritten message sent to me. Steve, I don't know you personally, but I've always enjoyed your news from Groundhog Hill. However, I've cried and grieved with you about the last two articles you wrote. Jim was a very, very special person. I don't know what I would have done without him after my husband Harold passed away in July 2008. He helped me so much with financial stuff. And he had done our income tax return for many years. Harold was a collector of old things. So he and Jim bonded, not only through that, but also as friends. I had just made Jim's special cookies, old time sugar ones, as he called them, when I learned Monday night of his death. I baked them the next morning, crying as I did so, and took them to Alex's home so you could all eat them in Jim's memory. I'll always remember Jim with love and sweet memories. Most sincerely, Cynthia Carter. My brother Alex may have got the cookies, but I got this note, this consolation. I don't know Cynthia Carter, but here was a woman in my hometown, a widow, who apparently had been baking my father cookies for years. Dad had that effect on widows. <laughs> they loved him, and he was always being chased, which I suspect he loved. He also had a sweet tooth, so I am sure he enjoyed the cookies as well. Now, did Cynthia Carter love my father? I think she probably did. I think it especially brave of her to send me such an honest, emotion-filled condolence. There was no, I'm sorry for your loss. Cynthia let me know she was grieving with me. 
Now, up until the week Dad died, he was working on people's tax returns at the age of 95. That's the kind of guy he was. Women loved him, and men couldn't do without him. Dad loved to go to his office, which is located on the town square. And when my brother Ben cleaned out his desk, of course, among all the cards and letters that Dad had saved over the years, he found lots of half-empty bags with cookies, now mostly crumbs. They were the old-time sugar ones. Thank you. Ben Simon brought the house down with his improvised letter based on the audience suggestion of a haircut. Dear Mr. McCutcheon, thank you for the haircut that you gave me on June 12th. Not thank you for how terrible it was. I told you that I was having a big job interview, the biggest job interview of my life, and that I needed to look professional. You said, I know what that means, and you gave a wink. I'm still not sure what that wink meant, but I think that you think that I said, make me look like a whore. I didn't know until you gave me this haircut that someone could look like a whore just from their hair. But you did. When I left the barber shop, I was propositioned by several men and one woman. And a child looked at me in a way that made me feel uncomfortable. I did the best that I could to make myself look professional. I put the hair back that I could, except for the strands that stuck out that I was unable to pin back. I put on very limited makeup because I really didn't want to look more like a whore. I wore a nice business suit with shoulder pads just so I looked more professional. But still, when I came into the business of McCutcheon and McCutcheon, which only reminded me of your last name, which was... I hope that you are unrelated because it would be very unfortunate if you were. But when I walked in, the secretary or administrative assistant, it is the modern day now, she looked me up and down and said, oh, I didn't know you just walked into the offices now. I thought our compatriots met you in the alley, and I had to clarify that I was here for the position, and she said, what position? And then she laughed. <laughs> Which made me infer, and then it took me a second to, it was, she meant a sex thing. I thought it was very unprofessional. I clarified that I was here for the filing position, and I, apparently McCutcheon McCutcheon is very old-fashioned that they use so many files, but it is a law firm. <laughs> and then she rolled her eyes. I don't know why she rolled her eyes, and she, she whisked me upstairs for the interview. And I went in to meet Mr. Bradley McCutcheon, half of McCutcheon and McCutcheon, and he said, you're here for the interview? And I said, yes. And he said, normally you guys meet us in the alley. And I, <laughs> I said, no, I'm here for the filing position. 
what is it that makes you think I'm a whore? And he pointed to my hair, so I was right on. It was only my hair. And I said, what makes, my, what, what makes me look like a whore? And he said that my hair looked a little bit like an arrow pointing to my vagina. <laughs> and then I realized he was right. My hair did look exactly like an arrow pointing to my vagina. And now I realized why everyone was thinking that I was a whore. Well, I said I was not a whore. And then Mr. McCutcheon said, really? That's too bad. <laughs> I was very upset, but also very flattered. <laughs> and I was really torn. I consider myself a feminist, but at that moment, I was like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> I do need a job. And I told him that I would never sleep with him, at least until I had gotten a job. I was really torn about what I was doing. And he said, all right. And we drew up a contract, and I agreed that I would work there for five years before I would ever sleep with him. I thought that was fair, because I could quit easily within five years. Well, I've been working happily here at McCutcheon and McCutcheon ever since that haircut in June. I was so angry when I started this letter, but... <laughs> As I've gone through, I've realized your haircut gave me the job that I have today. So instead of complaining, I want to thank you, Mr. McCutcheon, for this wonderful haircut. I've gotten attention. I've also dabbled in lesbianism now. <laughs> And if I wait 10 years, that kid that made me very uncomfortable will be prime real estate. <laughs> Sincerely, Betsy McCutcheon. <laughs> what a coincidence. Allison Adams shares a beautiful and heartfelt letter she wrote to Paris Jackson after Paris's 2013 suicide attempt. Dear Paris, because of the recent news report of your suicide attempt, I am moved to write you. You don't know me, and I don't know you, but I do know how it feels to lose your hero. My heart goes out to you, because you are so young and have been shoved into the limelight like a slap in the face when your heart is breaking. The emptiness is crushing in a world without the person you love so much. How does one survive each day when everything is wrong? Please know my prayers are with you as you ride this storm. Like Frank Capper said, friend, you are a divine mingle-mangle of guts and stardust, so hang in there. When you are in the dark, keep reaching for the light. Don't believe the voices that tell you hurtful things. Stop those blades that will cut you blind. Let your rage out somewhere safe, but not out on yourself. Your father is always watching over you, and he won't let anything happen. You have a guardian angel, you are not alone. This too shall pass, but it's going to take some work. I know how it feels 
to lose your hero and be left all alone because my father died of an overdose when I was seven. A journey like ours can take half a lifetime. It is natural to be going through the dark night of the soul after what you've gone through. You're not crazy. You're a beautiful young woman, highly gifted, sensitive soul with raging hormones. The arts will give you a place to heal and channel your pain into beauty. Your father was a great artist with his share of demons, but he loved you very much. We are not the sins of our fathers. Nobody promised you a rose garden, but he did give you Neverland. And now they want to take it away. It doesn't seem fair. Find a way to make peace with that horrible night of your father's death that must haunt you still. That terrible moment when you learned nothing was ever going to be the same again. It is a long road to understanding, so don't let the struggle eat you alive. Keep the memories safe so nobody can ever take them away. I was so moved to hear you planted a Zen garden on the Neverland grounds. It gives me hope that you are healing and will grow your own free, strong spirit wherever you are. Find friends who will hold your secrets safe and love you for you. Use your power wisely. Take care and make your father proud. With deep compassion, Allison Adams. My name is Jane Entwistle, a producer on To Whom It May Concern, and I read a letter to American Express about the perils of sticking your finger where it doesn't belong. Dear American Express, <laughs> I'm writing to inform you that you can stop sending me applications for your credit cards. I know how badly you want me to join the ranks of those indebted to you based upon the amount of mail you send me on a regular basis. But I will never, ever apply. Not ever. Not because I wouldn't enjoy being a member of your money club or because I'm standing on some moral high ground based on your corporate policies. Simply put, the memory of getting my finger stuck in an American Express credit card machine is still too painfully vivid. <laughs> I've done a lot of stupid, absent-minded things in my life, and most of them have occurred while employed. There was the time I sprayed all of the fish in the seafood department of a major grocery store with bleach. <laughs> or the time I misplaced the cash register drawer for a whole night. It was found nestled in amongst the towels of the linen closet. Or the time I'd forgotten they were waxing the floors outside of my office, and I slid halfway down the hallway, leaving my skid marks forever imprinted on the fourth floor. But entombing my finger in a credit card machine lives on a special list all by itself. My excuse, besides stupidity, theatrics, being overly dramatic, being young and in performing arts school and living every moment as if Oscar Wilde were taking notes on my performance of life. <laughs> the credit card machine in question was located at Cafe Dilettante on Capitol Hill in Seattle, Washington. 
I was a waitress, a shift manager, a gobbler of our gourmet hand-dipped truffles. My co-workers were my best friends, theater school chums, roommates, and neighbors. Kate would regularly tap dance in the display window, not a service offered at Café Dilettante. I was presented with the challenge of fitting inside the truffle case, which, once the chocolates were removed, I fit snug as a bug in a rug. When you task young creative 20-somethings with running a cafe, this is what happens. Our biggest coup was creating an imaginary soap opera called Sweet Success that ran parallel to our shifts. When an employee clocked in for work, they were given a role in that night's episode. The customers were unaware of the trials and tribulations their waiters were experiencing in the world of sweet success as we served them cakes and lattes. One storyline was that I was overheard saying I had a bun in the oven. In between filling espresso orders, Paul's, Paul built up the courage to ask me to marry him. It was, after all, the honorable thing to do in the world of sweet success. As we served the last customers for the evening, Paul was brought into the kitchen, where it was revealed I really did have a bun in the oven, a nice round sourdough boule. In another episode and subsequent shift, the lump in my bra that had half the cast of Sweet Success silently yet dramatically crying in the bathroom was nothing more than a wayward truffle. As waiters passed each other in the cafe, you could hear them faintly humming our theme song. Yes, we had a theme song. Sweet success, you know it's gonna be the best. <laughs> Knowing what you now know, American Express, about the environment in which your credit card machine was housed, is it any wonder that I got my finger trapped? It was a vicious little blue box that looked like an angular Pac-Man from the side. You placed the credit card inside and the carbon paper slipped, does everybody remember carbon paper? On top. You pressed down the top until the machine closed to the thickness of a credit card. I was on the phone to our Pike Street store horsing around with the Scottish manager, fiddling with the blasted machine absentmindedly when it closed on my finger and tried to process it. <laughs> I could feel a mechanism hitting my finger over and over and over again, trying to read it, but the jaws had locked shut. I started screaming bloody murder, gabbling down the phone that the demon machine had me trapped. It was the most dramatic, albeit spur-of-the-moment, episode of Sweet Success in History. <laughs> the iron jaws were finally pried open, and I was sent home cradling my finger, which was tattooed with the words, American Express, <laughs> along the side of it. My finger became a hero, everyone wanting to see the words imprinted on its side, but I would never stick my finger where it didn't belong again. <laughs> save a tree American Express save a whole bloody forest for when your offers arrive in my mailbox I rip them up with a perverse glee I could really do without to our continued sweet success Jane Entwistle <laughs>
You have been listening to To Whom It May Concern, produced by Jane Entwistle and Justin Crane and recorded live at the Lyric Hyperion Theater and Cafe in Silver Lake, California. The musician for this episode was the very talented Mr. Adam Levy. She came from Amarillo In a sundress and her favorite pair of boots Subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes so we cut through the noise. You can also find us on Podbean and Stitcher. And if you have a letter you would like to submit, even if you live far, far away, we will read it for you. Visit readyourletter.com. She wasn't big on smiling. But when she laughed, she could bring the whole house down. I won't forget the day she drove her blue ranchero into town. I was a heartbreak champion, but maybe not the real.